Hi there, and welcome to another episode of A Light Unto My Path podcast. This is your host, Howard Sides. Uh, today we're going to continue our study in the book of Revelation, uh, starting with chapter 5. Chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5. And this chapter continues uh, the vision of what John is describing out of chapter 4. Um, it's a further uh, continuation there of what he sees. That's the easiest way to say it. So, uh, chapter 5, we'll just start reading with verse 1 uh, down through verse 7. We'll see how far we can get with that. And continue our, begin our study with chapter 5, continuing our study with the book of Revelation. All right, Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Okay, so John's describing a, uh, a vision here uh, of this book, this seven-sealed book, and the question of who's worthy to open this book. So, so we'll look into that. Now, verse 1, uh, we see the observation. The observation, several things to note about this observation. Number one is the position of this book. The position of this book. Notice it says, in the right hand of him that sat on the throne. Now, the right hand is symbolic of strength and justice. Strength and justice. Not only is he holy enough to pass judgment, to pass the judgment and to hold the judgment, but he is also strong enough to carry through with that judgment. And then, of course, the one that sat on this throne, it would be God himself. It's the Father. God the Father uh, holds this book up and asks who's worthy to open it. And if you notice, not just the fact of who's, <laughs> no one's even worthy of opening it. They can't even look upon it. <clears throat> Excuse me. They can't even look at it. So we see the position of this book. Uh, now, the portrayal of the book. Uh, John says it was written within and on the backside. Written within and on the backside. That means it's writing on both sides. And it shows us the importance and character of its contents. It contains a lot of information. Now, we are not told exactly what is written, but there are a couple of hints. There are some hints uh, as to what's in this book, but you have to go... Uh, through other parts of the Bible to figure this out. Now, Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 through 10 says, And when I looked, behold, a hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book was therein. And he spread it before me, and it was written within and without, and there was written therein lamentations, mourning, and woe. Lamentations, mourning, and woe. And, of course, we're just getting into the book of Revelation, so we really haven't broken down like the actions that are going to take place next and things like that. But chapter 6, the next chapter, is where the seven seals start being broken. Okay? And as you get into figuring out that each one of these seals represents a great uh, calamity, 
that happens upon the face of the earth, you start realizing that that's what these seven seals are that are on this book that he's holding in his hand. They're judgments that are going to be pronounced against the world. And who is righteous enough to pass the judgment? Well, that's Jesus Christ. He's the one that's righteous and holy enough and strong enough to pass this judgment. Nobody can stop him from doing it. And so Ezekiel is given a perfect description of what exactly is in this book. And he, and he says, well, spread forth. And, and it's the same description written within and without. Written on the front side, written on the back side. And, he's, and he goes on and tells us. It was written therein, lamentations and mourning and woe. And several times the word woe is actually used uh, in some of these uh, explanations of the judgments that are coming. All right, so in the following chapters, the breaking of each seal results in the pouring out of these judgments written in this book. Okay, so um, the question may come up, what is the purpose of this book? What's the purpose of this book? Now, the breaking of the, it, it's a continual uh, progression. Uh, it's not just a book of seven judgments uh, and, and then all's done. It goes further than that. Um, it, it's where uh, the events happen in sevens in the book of Revelation. And when the seventh happens, the seventh one of a group happens, it usually begins or introduces or starts the next group of seven events. Uh, let me give you what I'm talking about now. This book contains the seven seals. Now, when you break the seven, when when Christ breaks the seventh seal, it issues in the seven trumpet judgments. So it's not seven seals and then and then the judgment part's done. Oh no! Uh, it, they, as a matter of fact, they ramp up. They get far worse. Each one is far worse than the first. So the breaking of the seventh seal issues in the seven trumpet judgments. The blowing of the seventh trumpet judgment issues in the seven vial or bowl judgments. And then with the seventh vial or bowl judgment is finished, it completes the judgments and signals the defeat of Satan and his end-time kingdom. Now, J. Hampton Keithley III, in his, <coughs> excuse me, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, in this portion here, uh, he says, this all suggests that the seven-sealed book contains the story of man losing his lordship over the earth to Satan, the usurper, and its recovery through the God-man, Savior, the lion, who is also the lamb. He alone is able to accomplish what no one else in the universe can, and he does so through the judgments of the seven-sealed book. So therein we see the purpose uh, of the book. All right, so uh, the next thing we want to look at is the preservation of the book, the preservation of the book, and that's in the statement, sealed with seven seals. It was preserved with seven seals. Um, not so long ago, we used to pass our mail, uh, not in an envelope, but we would write a letter, fold it up the three ways, whatever. Uh, take a candle and pour the wax on it and everyone would have a, a family seal or, or a signet or some kind of symbol uh, in a stamp or on the ring and they would stamp it down in that wax uh, until it started to cool and that was the seal that can, would contain that letter and keep it private uh, for the most part. <laughs> uh, but uh, you would have to break that seal to officially read the letter. So this book was preserved with seven seals, not just one, not just two, not just four, seven seals. And chapter six through eight reveals that each seal is open one at a time, issuing in a specific judgment identified with each one. Each one's a separate event and it's described in detail. Now this indicates that this book was either Number one, seven scrolls rolled together as one with one seal at the start of each, or it was seven individual sealed scrolls held up in one group, or one book with each chapter sealed, 
clearly visible by John. And he says, I saw seven seals. So he saw them all one time. Uh, now, Albert Barnes in his commentary on the notes, uh, in his book, Notes on Revelation, he says, and I quote, it is not stated in what manner the seals are attached to the volume, but it is clear that they were so attached that each seal closed one part of the volume and that when one was broken and the portion which that was designed to fasten was unrolled, a second, a second would become two, which it would be necessary to break in order to read the next portion. The outer seal would indeed bind the whole, but when that was broken, it would not give access to the whole volume unless each successive seal were broken. And and so that, that makes sense. I just, each one, as they broke one, was each uh, judgment passed on. And, and we see that as we get in the, uh, the next chapter, you'll see and when the first seal was broken and when the second seal was broken and when the third seal was broken. So with the breaking of each one, it begins the onset of the action con uh, associated with that uh, unique seal. Now, the use of seven seals is symbolic. First of all, it's spiritual. Uh, the spiritual number of completion or perfection is the number seven. So it spiritually signifies completion and perfection. Um, it was also culturally symbolic. The Roman custom uh, of making a wheel. Now, in, it involved a testator, T-E-S-T-A-T-O-R, uh, seven witnesses, each having a different seal, and also a very reliable friend. Okay, now how this worked was the testator uh, is the person that's making the wheel, okay? Or for whom the wheel belonged. Um, and then, of course, the witnesses are obviously explanatory. They're there to view and to give testimony of what they see in, in this testator creating this wheel. Now, the reliable friend would, for a coin, purchase the said property. And usually the wheels would bequeath uh, in the death of whoever the testator was. Uh, it would be the uh, dispensing of the, value, the values that he had, most likely <clears throat> property. And, and, and so this reliable friend would purchase uh, this land during this will ceremony uh, for a coin, a very cheap price. Now, it's not that he would take control, but basically he had, um, uh, what's the, uh, it's kind of like the power of attorney thing that we do today, sort of thing. Uh, when family members sometimes get, uh, um, I'm trying to be correct. And when I say that, when they get so far down the road, you know, they can't think for themselves, they can't act for themselves. Uh, a power of attorney uh, is where a family member, a trusted family member, uh, steps in and, and makes the decisions for that one that's just, that they just can't do it for themselves. And, and it, so this, <clears throat> uh, where the reliable friend would purchase this property, uh, wasn't quite that far, but it was like in the event of the death of this person, then he would take charge. Okay. He, he would kind of, uh, look after the property till the law process went through and, and actually transferred everything where the will said it should go. Okay. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. So, uh, <clears throat> the reliable friend would for a coin purchase said property. Then upon the death of the testator, the friend would return the property to the rightful heirs. Now, a long parchment was used for this transaction. Uh, now, if you know anything about uh, uh, legal things today, it involves humongous stacks of paper. Uh, it's not. There's nothing simple about anything said in the law anymore. You got to explain everything. Uh, five points to the wind. So anyway, um, the Romans had a knack for that too. So a long parchment was used for this transaction. Now the writer would begin writing for a period. He would stop, roll up the parchment enough to cover his words, seal it with the first witness seal, 
then proceed to write more, stopping once more, sealing this portion with the second seal, and so on until the seven seals were attached. So that's the cultural uh, symbolic of these seven seals. And then the third application is that it was also historical. This was uh, talking about the Jewish custom of the kinsman redeemer. Now the loss of property, possessions, or a husband could not be permanently taken from a Jewish family. Uh, the Old Testament law of Jubilee and the kinsman redeemer took care of that. Anything that was lost from a uh, bad debt, a bad decision, uh, the, the death of someone, um, and that land was sold to kind of help them, rescue them out. Every 40 years uh, was this uh, jubilee. And it was a time of celebration because everything returned to normal. Everything came back. And, and that's exactly what happened. No matter how much was owed, what you had on it, uh, that land returned to its original owner. That land was never sold off to a foreign uh, uh, individual or even a, a, another Israelite, but not in the family. It stayed in the family. So any losses were listed inside a scroll, and that scroll would be sealed seven times. Now, the conditions necessary to purchase back the losses were written on the outside of the scroll. And the next thing to notice about this symbology uh, of the sevens here with these seals uh, is the application of it. There's a threefold application to it. Uh, first of all, it uh, describes the divine purpose uh, for man is decreed. The divine purpose for man is decreed. Now, the earth and its dominion properly belong to Adam and to his descendants. That's the way God set this thing up. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through the first part of 8 describes that for us. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 says, But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thy hands, talking about the earth, verse 8, thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. So when God created Adam, and he created the earth, and the animals, and all of the birds, and the sea, and everything in it, uh, God put Adam in charge of that. And when Adam failed, when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, they lost that power, the dominion. Okay, so that's the divine purpose. Now, the second thing uh, uh, for man is decreed. Now, the divine purpose uh, also is shown to be delayed. Now, the earth and the human race was not meant to be ruled by angels, Satan, or his fallen angels, or under his control in, in any shape, matter, or form. Uh, the next part of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 8 continues and says, But now we see not yet all things put under him. So part of that power was taken, um, stolen, if you will, uh, tricked out of him, deceived out of him, for whatever manner of purpose. Uh, the divine purpose was delayed. And then the third part of that, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the divine purpose was decided. The divine purpose for man was decided. And therefore, someone must be found within humanity, a trusted friend or kinsman, redeemer, one who is qualified to reclaim this lost inheritance. So looking back at the symbology and how it's applied to this whole situation, we see that this kinsman redeemer is found and described uh, continuing in chapter 2 of Hebrews, verses 9, verses 14, and verse 17 describes uh, who is worthy, who is able to set things back the way they are supposed to be. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus, 
who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. And then on down in verse 14, it says, For as much then, as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also <clears throat> himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And in verse 17, Wherefore in all things that it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Okay, so therein uh, we see described the observation. Now verse 2 uh, talks about the proclamation. Verse 2, the proclamation. And we see there uh, it mentions a strong angel. <clears throat> now, three times in the book of Revelation, an angel is described or or depicted as strong or mighty. Now, there's this portion here, verse 2 of chapter 5. And then again in chapter 10 and verse 1, where he carries a little book and cries with a loud voice. Chapter 10, verse 1. And then again in Revelation chapter 18 and verse 21. And this is where he throws a huge millstone in the sea and announces the fall of Babylon. Now, there's things that kind of hint to us uh, who this specific angel is. Um, it doesn't say here specifically that this is the angel Gabriel. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, but when you tie it in with uh, some things that are mentioned in the book of Daniel, when Daniel's speaking to the angel there, uh, it, it kind of lets us know that it is Gabriel. Uh, Daniel chapter 8, verses 16 and 26 uh, says, And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. And then later in verse 26 says, And the vision of the evening and the morning, which was told, is true. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. In other words, what he's saying is, uh, write it down, but cover it up and, and don't say anything about it because it's not going to come about for many, many years. Okay, uh, days or years. Uh, now this next phrase, proclaiming with a loud voice. Now proclaiming is the Greek word keruso, keruso, K-E-R-Y-S-S-O, keruso. It means to herald, to cry aloud, to preach, pertaining specifically to divine truth. Pertaining specifically to divine truth. Now, it would take a strong angel to proclaim to the entire world. Yes, it would. Now, the loud voice also indicates urgency and great concern. <clears throat> and what does he say? He says, who is worthy, or ask the question, really, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals? So uh, here's this strong angel, and he's getting ready to proclaim something that's heard throughout everywhere. Uh, proclaim, pro, yeah, pro, can you say it? Proclaiming with a loud voice. Uh, he's wanting the answer, and, and he's yelling it as, as loud and as far away as he possibly can be heard. Who is worthy? to open the book and to loose the seals. So herein, uh, this question, uh, or, or this thing, there is uh, a threefold challenge presented. First of all, who is worthy? Now to approach, uh, first of all, to be worthy, they'd have to uh, uh, be able to approach the sovereign God Almighty sitting on his throne. There's not many, uh, I guess I'll use the term individuals, <laughs> that can do this. There's not a, lot, a large group of entities, people, uh, characters that can do this. Uh, <clears throat> now, in, in, in asking the question, uh, it tells us, first of all, in this three-word proclamation, 
uh, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals, uh, that there had to be somebody. I, otherwise, why would there be a book? Why would there be seals upon it to be broken? What would be the point of creating a book that had seals on it uh, so that it could never be broken and read? It, it was unique in that there was one person who was worthy, but the statement indicates that there is someone. So what must this one be worthy of? When we say worthy, what, what are we talking about? Well, first of all, to redeem the forfeited inheritance of the lost paradise earth. Now, Satan is in possession now. And as such, he was able to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, uh, or, or he attempted to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, the only one lawfully able to redeem the world. Uh, so uh, Satan knew um, that Jesus, when, when he started the temptation in the wilderness, he knew that he was the only one that could uh, take possession of the earth out of his hands. So that's why he tempted him. That was the whole point of it. Uh, but yet, uh, Christ never failed to the temptation. Now, Leviticus 25, uh, there's a couple of passages I want to read in reference to this, uh, what he must be worthy of. Uh, Leviticus 25, 25 tells us, If thy brother be waxen poor and hath sold away some of his possession, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. So that was the law. Um, you got a family member that uh, just exercises poor business practice or poor financial practice or whatever, it loses everything he has. Uh, you as the next of kin, if you are the next of kin of the kinsman redeemer, have the right on, on the day of Jubilee to, to redeem that which his brother had sold. You can get that pro uh, property back or will get the property back. <clears throat> uh, the book of Ruth, uh, chapter four, verses one through six, uh, explains it out in a little more detail. Uh, then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. And he said unto the kinsman, Naomi, that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is none to redeem it beside me, thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. Then said Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, Thou must also buy it. Uh, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. And the kinsman said, "I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it." Now, what's going on here? <laughs> what's being said? Uh, the short version of it is. Um, Boaz and Ruth, they, they kind of have something going on here. They kind of fall in love. But because of Ruth's uh, position in the family, her next of kin was this other kinsman. And so Boaz is sitting at the gate saying, uh, you know, Naomi's back and, you know, she's kind of hurting for some money. So she wants to sell a portion of the land. Uh, if you don't have the means to do it, then the uh, responsibility falls to me, is what he's saying. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, land? Oh, yeah, I'll take it up. And then Boaz says, well, he said there's a little more involved to it. He said, when you buy the land, along with it comes this uh, Moabitess woman. And you're going to have to take her as your wife uh, as part of that inheritance. Now, if you know anything about the Jews, they... they don't have anything to do with any other race, nationality. There's Jew and Gentile, and that is it. They don't want anything to... So this kinsman's like, oh no, if I buy this land and I have to take her as my wife, then it's going to mar my bloodline, my inheritance. It's going to mess up my 
uh, stature. That, that's what he's saying. <laughs> so kind of Boaz kind of led him in making that. So uh, this proclamation not only targeting, targets the worthiness of the Redeemer, uh, but also the willingness of the Redeemer. Now, in looking at that story, in, in that Boaz kind of had to mislead this uh, kinsman so he could get Ruth for himself, he didn't describe how beautiful Ruth was, at least to him. Uh, he didn't want this guy to have Ruth, is what it comes down to. He wanted to keep Ruth for himself. Uh, but look at this as compared to what Jesus did for us. Um, the Bible clearly indicates to us uh, how unworthy we truly are. Now, different from this story here in the book of Ro, uh, Ro, uh, Ruth, uh, Christ comes into this knowing exactly what he's getting. He knows more about us than we know ourselves. And he still went through it. So it's not only the worthiness, but it's also the willingness. And it's more... Uh, of a picture of the willingness than it is the worthiness. And that Christ looked and said, okay, I see what I'm getting. I'm still going through with it. Okay. And now in um, the apocalypse, I know, I know it's not considered part of the Bible, uh, but it's interesting reading. Um, as long as you associate it with just that, it's interesting reading. It's man's words, basically. So, uh, it's talking about this aspect of the kinsman uh, redeemer and that sort of thing, redemption. And, and it says, and I quote, the truth is that everything on earth rests on a mediatorial basis. A mediatorial basis. And basically that means one who med mediates or intercedes between God and man. So everything on earth rests on this basis. The world stands and man exists only because of Christ and his undertaking to be our Savior. But for his meteor, mediatorship, Adam would have perished the day that he uh, transgressed and never a human being would have been born. The very ungodliest of the race owe whatever blessings they enjoy to the blood and engagement of Christ. Even the lower animals and the very grasses of the field live and flourish by virtue of the same. Redemption is therefore so far a living force. Like a golden chain, it girdles the world, upholds it from destruction, and sustains and blesses all the varied and successive generations on its surface. But, all this sea of mediatorial mercies is as nothing compared with what is yet to come. Redemption has its roots and foundations in the past, but its true realization lies in the future and connects directly with the period and transactions to which our text relates. The scriptures everywhere point forward to Christ's apocalypse as the time when first the mystery shall be finished and the long process reaches proper consummation. Jesus talked to his disciples about the signs which were to precede his coming and said, uh, he's quoting Luke 21, 28 here, uh, and when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. End quote. Okay, so uh, what's going on here? We're asking the question, who is worthy? This is the first part of the threefold challenge presented. Who is worthy? Um, first, they have to approach the sovereign God. Second, they have to be able to take this book out of the very hand of God. <laughs> That's quite a, an action there, to be able to reach up and take this book. Now, an interesting note is that the book is held in God's hand and sealed shut indicates to us that God himself purposed someone else to make the contents known and to carry out their judgments on his behalf. Was God worthy? Of course he was worthy. But he put the task on the son as the son had become the redeemer. 
okay? God is God. He's holy, righteous. He could do that. So anyway, so that was the second part of that. And the third part of that uh, was that not only he had to take the book, but he had to break the seals, thereby issuing in the judgments upon the earth. Okay, so that's the first of the threefold challenge. The second one is to open the book, to actually open the book. Now, <clears throat> uh, opening the book uh, is the, um, uh, I, I can't think of the word right now, but anyway, when he opens the book, he has the power uh, to enact these judgments, okay? That, that's, I guess that's the word I'm looking for. He has the authority, <laughs> the authority to enact these judgments, to allow them or to initiate their beginning. Uh, and, and then um, the third part is, of course, to break the seals. He has to have the, the worthiness to break that seal. Uh, the phrase, who is worthy, is not so much a question as it is a proclamation. We look at it as a question because it begins with the word who. Uh, so that, to us, indicates it's a question, but it is a proclamation. Now, remember the verse says, the strong angel proclaimed. He did not ask. He proclaimed who is worthy. And so that tells us that uh, they know there is one worthy. Uh, so it wasn't a question of who. It wasn't a mystery. It was a statement. Okay, um, let's get through a few more of these. Uh, verse 3, we see the investigation. Verse 3, the investigation. Um, <clears throat> three parts of this. It says, and no man in heaven, in earth, under the earth was able to open the book. So in this investigation, first of all, in heaven, that's the created beings, the angels as well as departed saints. It shows that angels cannot reveal future events that have not been revealed to them by God. They don't know the future. Uh, on earth, that's all classes of people, rich, poor, doesn't matter, famous, not famous, big, little, whatever, doesn't matter who you are. None of them are worthy. They even look under the earth. Now, this is the abode of the dead. Now, these three divisions include the entire universe. They looked all over, and there was none found worthy. None found. And then it says uh, in that phrase, was able to. Even if someone had the rank and moral power, they still fell short of the divine power and the ability. So even if they had uh, the rank and power, uh, moral power, they didn't have the divine power. That you got to have the both of them, and they only had one of them. <coughs> Excuse me there. <coughs> Sinus is acting up today. Okay, verse four, the lamentation. Verse four, the lamentation, and I wept much. Because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. So first of all, in this lamentation, we see the effect. Now, the searching of a godly man, seeking God's righteousness to be found in this world, to rid it once and for all of the evil. The sorrow of a godly man, realizing that not one single person in the billions from Adam's race is found worthy to solve man's dilemma. So we see the searching and we see the sorrow that results from that searching. They looked everywhere and could find no one. And then uh, that's the effect. Now the experience. Mankind has been searching in all the wrong places for answers to the problems. Uh, and it still goes on today. Uh, even more so today. First of all, they'll look to the government. Well, government ain't the answer. I'll tell you that right up front. Second of all, they look to wealth. Um, if I just had more money, I'd be, if I could just win the lottery, I'd be happy. They ain't going to do a thing. All it does is add to your problems. Um, they look to pleasure, um, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all that stuff. Uh, they think that there's going to be uh, pleasure in all of that or answer. It ain't going to work. Philosophy. They think that uh, great thinkers have all the answers. No, they don't. God cannot deliver a message to men unless there is a man fit to receive that message. God cannot deliver a message to men unless there is a man fit to receive it 
and as well as give it to pass it on profit profit kind of thing um, god can speak to man directly yes <coughs> but anyway okay so we see the lamentation uh now the next thing we'll see is the manifestation and this kind of breaks it up and then i'll come back and fill in the hole but the manifestation is the first part of verse five and then six and seven okay verse five the first part it says, and one of the elders saith unto me, one of the elders saith unto me, weep not, and then behold. So, uh, one of the elders. Why not an angel or one of the beasts? We know there's angels there. We know there's beasts there. We know there's elders there. So why is it an elder that comes and says, you know, weep not? I'll tell you why. Because the elders represent the church. The elders represent the church. They have a personal interest in the welfare of the church. As this elder comforts John, so too this book is meant to comfort the believer. And you remember when we first started this study, I said that if there's a book in the Bible that intimidates more Christians than any other book in the Bible, it is this book of Revelation. Most Christians act like they're afraid of it. Right at the very beginning, in chapter 1, it tells us to comfort each other with this prophecy. It is meant to comfort us. It tells us the future. We know what's coming. Uh, maybe not when it's coming, but we know what's coming and that God's in charge. God is in control of the whole thing. It may look like the pillars are falling down around us and it is utter chaos. God is in control. God is in control. So <clears throat> we see one of the elders and then he uses that phrase, weep not. Now, this is not an empty attempt to cheer him up. Oh, it's okay. No, no, you cannot truly comfort someone without the comforter. And Christ is the comforter. So when he says, weep not, hey, he's got the best news that this guy has ever heard. And he's about to tell him. Now, behold, he uses this word to draw John's attention to a fact. Now, the elder is not telling John to listen, but rather to look. And then in verse 6, we know where he says, and I beheld. So he did look up. So in verse 6, he said, and I beheld. And lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. Stood uh, reveals two things in this action. First of all, by standing, we see his worthiness. By standing in front of the throne instead of kneeling or bowing. Now, anytime in the Bible, when, even when... Uh, a human comes into contact with a mayor angel. And by mayor angel, I'm certainly not uh, belittling their rank and authority, but uh, they are created beings. They're, they're not God. They're not Christ. They're not the Holy Spirit. But even when uh, someone in humanity uh, sees or uh, uh, an angel reveals them, tells them, their immediate reaction is to bow. It's the presence of God's holiness around that angel. It's not the actual angel itself. It's God's holiness that makes the person bow. But here we see Christ is standing. So it shows us, first of all, his worthiness. Next of all, it shows us his workmanship. He has a task to perform and is busy about it. Uh, in the Old Testament um, tabernacle, all that furniture that they put inside there, there's never a mention of a chair. Those priests were never to sit because the work of the priest was never done. It wasn't until Christ shed his blood, his pure blood, and then it says in the Bible tells us that he went and sat down on the right. That was a symbolic reference to the fact that the job was done. So here now he's starting on the judgment side of the job, and it says he's standing. He's ready to go to work. And there is a task to be performed, and he's worthy to do it. <clears throat> uh, and in and, and talking about those, uh, uh, the tabernacle not having any chairs, it went on further, even in the temple. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, actually tells us about that. It says, And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But it's like it was holding the judgment until Christ shed his blood where it could actually be paid for. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 3, 
if you uh, know anything about the Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 3, the priest Eli, it tells there of him sitting down. It says he was sitting down. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. That means God could not talk to them for the presence of sin. And it came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place and his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. And ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. How could this happen? And it was like Eli was the last ditch effort and as he died, the light was just fading away. So if you go back and read uh, a little bit further uh, into what's going on, go back to chapter 1 in 1 Samuel, in verse 9. And it says, Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. Uh, th 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 that's an abuse of the power right there. And anytime you're not following God's command, uh, the power starts leaving. I can tell you that right now. The power starts leaving. So he's lucky God didn't strike him dead. So the only priest who had authority to sit down was the one high priest who completed the job. The one high priest who completed the job. And Hebrews again talks about that in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, Christ could sit because he purged our sins. He paid the price for all of our sins, past, present, and future. <clears throat> but now we see him standing once again, ready and able to perform the next action. <clears throat> and if you'll notice that phrase there, it says, a lamb as it had been slain. Now, a lamb was symbolic of innocence uh, and the animal commonly used in sacrifice. John 1 29 says the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Now note that the elder uses John's own statement to behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. So as John the Baptist was baptized he even says behold the Lamb of God. Here this elder is looking at this John and says hey behold here is that lamb that you're uh that's being described now the next phrase there uh had been slain and i could go into a long description about this but uh as it had been slain the marks of the crucifixion could clearly be seen there we hear songs all the time about his nail scarred hands his hands are not nail scarred scarred is the presence of healing his hands are not going to heal at least not at this moment all the way up to where he's standing here it said in the midst of it stood a lamb as it had been slain as it had been slain they could visually see the presence of the crucifixion on him uh, and, and I did a study on it not long ago. Uh, I, I put it on here. You can find it on the podcast. Uh, uh, it, it even refers to the fact that, that um, when Christ returns, uh, that the Jews are going to actually see him as he is, and, and it's going to scare the life out of them because there's going to be no mistake who it is. Now, how can there be no mistake who it is? They're not going to know Jesus Christ. It's not a sense of recognition of the person, 
but there will be a sense of recognition in the descriptions of what had happened to him, and they're going to know by the marks on him, the blood on him, who this is. There, there's going to be no doubt. They're going to know who it is. All right, and uh, that next phrase, it says the seven horns and seven eyes. Now, seven horns symbolizes the perfection of authority and power. Uh, seven eyes represents uh, the eyes of the Lord seeing all things, all things that happen on the earth. Uh, Psalms 139, 7-10 tells us, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. Now, verse 7, and he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Christ confirms that he is able by taking the book out of the hand of God. Okay, so we're going to stop there and pick up the next part of our study uh, in finishing up the second part of verse 5, where it talks about the lion of the tribe of Judah uh, and the root of David <clears throat> and just what that means and uh, uh, finish that thought there. Okay, all right, so I uh, hope you've enjoyed this study today as we're getting into chapter 5 and, and starting on that portion of it. And I hope you'll join me next time. Uh, once again, remember uh, to pray for each other. Um, pray continually. Uh, I know we're in, in times that we really need prayer, not just for ourselves, but for each other. Uh, you may not know another person that's listening, uh, or, or, or it may not have to be that you know, dedicated to this uh, podcast, people who are listening to it. Uh, it may just be someone you know in your church or, or in your family or in your home or another. Just pray for each other. I, I say that all the time in my church. Uh, we need to pray for each other. Uh, there are times when we just, we can't pray. Uh, we just don't know the words to say. And I know that the Holy Spirit kind of puts the words in, in Christ's heart, but, but it helps when we pray for each other. It gives us ourselves. It gives us strength uh, to continue on, too. So uh, I encourage you to do that, uh, especially in these last days. We're certainly in the last days. But anyway, okay, so we'll wrap up this podcast. Once again, I thank you for listening uh, and have a blessed day. All right. God bless you.